Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. Welcome to CX Stories. My name is Tashara Dibley from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. And today I'm speaking with Emeritus Professor Peter Windsor. Peter is a Professor Emeritus in the School of Veterinary Science here at the University of Sydney. And before that, he was Professor of Livestock Health and Production here. He's worked within an academic context for the last 20 years, but prior to that, he held a range of applied research science roles across New South Wales. His current research focuses on ruminant health and production problems in Southeast Asia that aim to assist the control of foot and mouth disease, which we'll discuss in more detail shortly. His work contributes to improving food security in developing countries and animal welfare in production systems. He's contributed over 230 peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapter publications. And in 2011, he was awarded the Kestevan Medal by the Australian College of Veterinary Scientists and Australian Veterinary Association for his contributions to international veterinary science. Peter was also formerly a member of the SEAC Board of Management back when the centre was first established and has long been involved in a range of our different programs. Welcome, Peter. It's wonderful to be able to talk to you as part of the podcast. Thank you, Sashara. Yes, good to be back. So just to get us started, how would you describe the links between vet science and human rights in broad terms? Well, our motivation in veterinary science is to enhance the... uh, production systems, the safety of food and food security. So this is about social equity. So it's about trying to lift people out of poverty, especially rural smallholder farmers who are often below the poverty line, trying to share our resources through mainly knowledge. So veterinary science is critical in that because many of the problems that these people face, animal disease and uh, limitations on uh, animal production through disease and lack of knowledge of feeding and reproduction skills. So we try to provide those people with better uh, skills in animal husbandry, but that also means that they have better futures, better livelihoods, better opportunities for their children. So in our projects, some are able to then go into university rather than be stuck in the cycle of poverty. So there's some really direct links there between making sure animals are healthy and ensuring that humans are in a good way. Yes, um, when I was in the Philippines and we helped the Philippines eradicate foot and mouth disease, we used to say a house is not a home without a pig because in the Philippines uh, many smallholder families have a sow in the kitchen behind a besser brick wall and they fed all their scraps to this sow and she produced two litres a year which meant that that family earned more money from that sow than if they worked for the local government. So actually it provided them with a decent income quality food and uh, and better opportunities for their livelihoods. And when they got foot and mouth disease, those piglets, they all died. So they'd lose essentially half their income for the year with the case of foot and mouth disease. So we were able to go in to those families and, and teach them a very simple hygiene technique. And that was that when they got pieces of pork, not to feed uncooked scraps to the pigs. And so that would break the cycle because that would kill the virus. The Human rights link there is that that is something that everybody should know and they should have, be able to protect themselves from a loss of income. This is the, in the smallholder world, this is the GFC, the global food crisis rather than the global financial crisis because a, it's a global food crisis it happens regularly from diseases in, of animals because that impacts directly on the incomes of the families. 
So for you personally, would you say that when you're thinking about your research questions that you're driven by human rights interests or are there other factors driving the way you think about your research questions and they just happen to intersect with human rights? It probably goes back to when I was a child. I couldn't believe that the world was structured in a way that there was such inequity. And we lived in a country where we had lots of food all the time. That was not the issue. There was certainly rural poverty in Australia, but that was just a case of modernising agriculture and sharing the knowledge mostly and some of the technology. So Australian agriculture is through, especially through research, is leading the world in so many areas. And now whilst we're moving on to tackling problems about animal welfare, etc., many developing countries are stuck back in the past where there's these diseases and poor understanding of how to feed animals. Now, uh, as I said, these animals are part of the household and people tend to think of animals as separate from the household, but in fact, they're very integrated. So the household human rights is really a human animal rights issue. It's about making the world a better place for everybody and all the animals that we care for. So one of the diseases you've mentioned already and that you do a lot of work on is foot and mouth disease. Could you explain what it is? Foot and mouth disease is a a virus that causes uh, viremia. So when it gets into the animal, it circulates, it gets a fever and then develops vesicles, which are ulcers essentially on the mouth and the feet. So they can't walk and they can't eat and they lose a lot of weight. We estimate the majority of animals would lose about 30% of their body weight. Uh, Young animals will die because the virus can actually affect the heart. If it gets into pigs, it wipes out the whole litter. In cattle, which is mainly mainly in mainland Southeast Asia, is mainly cattle. The disease in the Philippines is almost entirely in pigs. So uh, there are many different serotypes. So just as we seek with COVID now, the emergence of all these new serogroups, serotypes, and new hybrids and strains emerging, foot and mouth disease has had that for a long time. And so we have to really be on top of it to try and match the vaccines to the viruses that are circulating at that time. So could you just explain to us how the disease spreads between animals? Yes. The the disease spreads through animal movement and product movement, meaning livestock products that are not cooked. But um, within a herd, the virus is very transmissible. So if you bring an infected animal into a naive herd, then the majority of those animals, usually 60-70%, will become infected relatively quickly through aerosol transmission, close contact, etc. And one of the biggest problems, of course, is with untrained animal health personnel, they will visit a sick animal and then they'll go and look at other animals and they'll transmit it on their clothing, their feet, their hands, and even on vehicles. So there are many ways the virus can transmit. It's a reasonably robust virus and uh, it survives in cool weather. In the tropics, it doesn't travel as well, but there is such poor knowledge of basic hygiene and biosecurity that the disease is a major problem. And we have massive outbreaks. In the 2011-12 outbreak, we couldn't really find a village in Cambodia that was uninfected. Uh, So the majority of the population in a big outbreak will get infected. There'll be a period where it wanes because the animals are basically immune protected. And then that population will pass out of the the population and create a naive population. And then the virus outbreaks will occur again. So we see these cycles of, you know, five to seven years of massive outbreaks. How prevalent is it across Southeast Asia? Oh, well, it's endemic. All the countries are infected. We're involved closely with a program called the CCFMD program run by OIE, which is the World Health Organization for Animal Health. And um, they run annual meetings. Australia helped Indonesia and the Philippines eradicate foot and mouth disease. 
and we've been trying to transfer those lessons into Southeast Asia. It's been very challenging because of the ferocity of the borders, the animal movements. Uh, a lot of it's informal or essentially illegal, but they prefer to call it informal. Uh, so, yeah, there are massive problems, and there's just not enough vaccine uh, donors, and there's a limitation on how much a donor will invest in vaccine. That was actually going to be my next question. How do you manage the disease? Yeah, the disease is due to failure of biosecurity, but to get the disease to a manageable level, we need to do a lot of vaccinations. Now, we wrote a paper on a vaccine project that was done with 1.6 million doses of vaccine in northern Laos between 2012 and 2016, and uh, that worked quite well. We we didn't see any clinical disease, but our follow-up serology work showed that the disease was still circulating and that's the problem we'll face here with COVID is that once we're all vaccinated, it doesn't mean the disease is gone. We may not see much clinical disease, but the virus may still transmit. It suppresses. And people need to understand that most vaccines work by suppressing rather than preventing disease. And so the clinical impacts are lessened, but the disease may still occur. And within Southeast Asia, are there differences between areas that are better resourced than others? Is there yeah. sort of a discrepancy according to wealth within countries or within the region? Well, we talk about foot and mouth disease as being a failure of the food security system because it's the haves and have-nots. Countries that are developed don't have foot and mouth disease. We have good veterinary services. If we get it, we'll eradicate it immediately. It cost the British almost $20 billion when they had it in 2001. But other countries have managed to control it, some of the South American countries, at uh, much less it cost. So the, it's the haves and have-nots, the developing countries. And Southeast Asia has a lot of disease, but it's making some progress, whereas other parts of the world, especially in Africa, they're only, only just starting. So West Africa, for example, there's FMD is everywhere and there's very little control for it. And the programs are only just starting. East Africa is a bit further ahead, uh, North Africa a bit more, but um, a long way to go. Earlier, you mentioned the family who had in the Philippines who had two sows, and then when foot and mouth disease came through, it affected the health of those piglets and their income. Do you have any other examples of how foot and mouth disease affects communities? Um, in all our projects in Laos and Cambodia, we vaccinate all the animals. So within our village sites, we don't have the disease. However, when we first started in Laos, there was a very interesting misunderstanding. One of our project villages, they only vaccinated half the animals. So the outbreak came through and only one of our vaccinated village got affected. But in the unvaccinated, uh, 50% vaccinated village, there were seven animals affected. So the vaccine was still effective, but surrounding villages, 70% of all the animals got affected and there were mortalities. So that's the kind of dimension of the impact of the vaccine. It was a very interesting case study. However, what you're probably more interested in is what are the livelihood impacts for people who now have the disease under control through vaccination. And we've got some beautiful case studies, both countries, but say, for example, in Takao, which is south of uh, Phnom Penh, we have a series of uh, households there that uh, had cattle, and we also put in native chickens system and created forage productions, less rice produced, but forages for the cattle. And their income went from $1,500 a year of contract labour, uh, which was becoming more and more difficult, and uh, the husband thinking that he might have to migrate to Thailand to work. By upgrading their cattle and putting in the chickens, within two years they went to $4,500 
US a year, and with budgeting that within two or three years they'd be up to $12,000 a year. So this is quite phenomenal growth of the livelihood from this activity. And those children, the eldest one had already gone off to university and they could afford to send the child off to university and the next child was ready to go. So we're actually seeing in those families, these are families who normally the, the children might be thinking, the girls, for example, might be sitting on trucks for two hours a day going to work in a garment factory for $500 a year. And they can feed cattle and sell the calves from those cattle and make you know $5,000 a year. So the, it's quite phenomenal the impact you can have by evaluating the animals they have, increasing their population of the animals and being able to um, diversify their uh, income source. And they are able to stay in the rural areas, still get their children educated properly and afford health impacts on the family. So there's no welfare benefits in these countries, so there's no social safety net. So if someone gets sick, it's highly threatening to their income and their livelihoods, etc. That's really interesting. You had mentioned before that in some of your research, you talk specifically about the work you do with women, and yes. you touched on that here. But are there any other links between gender equality and the management of a disease like foot and mouth disease? Yes, we do. It was interesting that we learned this lesson in the Philippines because uh, the people who cook the food there are the women. So we had women only social groups training them into learning that they had to cook the uh, pork and not feed the juices uncooked to the pigs. That was a simple intervention. Now, the same occurs in the um, Mekong. We know that especially cattle raising is traditionally men's work. Now, many families, the men are, are now out trying to do contract labour, so increasingly women have that role. And we know that the women, when we have a meeting, we actually have to have a separate meeting with the women to empower them. We know that 80% of families, the women actually control the finances. So if we want to convince that family to pay for a vaccine, for example, or a dewormer, or invest in foragers, then we have to engage those women in that knowledge intervention. And we can do that quite effectively. Women are very receptive. It's very good. The interesting thing that's happening in Cambodia right now, though, is when you have meetings with their um, authorities now, and I think this comes from the top, as we're not talking just about women, we're talking about youth. And I noticed that there's some just popped up in a meeting the other day that when I said, oh, well, we need to you know, focus on gender disaggregation in our surveys, and they said, well, you need to do youth as well separately. And I thought, oh, this is very interesting. There might well be some political influence that's going on there. So how much does the politics of the countries you're working in influence the way you do your research? It's an overwhelming issue. Both countries have, you know, as significantly damaged pasts that were political and uh, certainly Cambodia is, is increasingly problematic in that respect. We have to tread carefully because the people we work with are senior government people, deputy director generals of departments of agriculture in both countries. We have to do things that do not endanger their role and uh, their position and ourselves. So, for example, in Last one time, there was a story of a feedlot where there'd been some massive mortalities. This feedlot was in a, uh, Atapu province and the, the ambassador for Australia asked me to go and in investigate it with the Department of Livestock and Fisheries. Well, when I spoke to my colleague, he said, we're not going there. And he advised me that that feedlot was actually a front for an illegal forestry operation and that if we went there, there's a very good chance we wouldn't come back. 
So uh, we just had to scrub that off. Uh, I'd faced this in the Philippines when we did random surveys. We would put village names in a computer and then out would come the list and then the local authorities would cross off villages where it was unsafe for us to go because there was a, you know, opposition bastion or criminality element, etc. Same thing occurs in Cambodia and Laos, and there's a lot of illegal activities along the border lines, particularly, and it's the borders that we want to try and control, but in some ways it's a bit of a wild west situation, so uh, we have to be careful, and uh, we don't want to end up, uh, especially as we knew in Cambodia, the political system there, they're happy to put Westerners in jail prior to an election to send a warning and show everybody how tough their leadership is. So we we do tread carefully and we do discuss the issue of human rights very carefully. We speak with our colleagues and collaborators and even the farmers about this, but you have to be careful what you say uh, because there is an element of overwhelming threat that we are there as visitors and we can easily damage the relationships we have, say, for our funding bodies which are through the Department of Foreign Affairs, if we are seen to be too radicalised or promoting dissent, etc. There may also be risks for your local partners. Very much so. We, we know that and they talk about that a lot when, whenever we try to push too hard on things that aren't right. We know they have to play the game. And, uh, for example, if you're a Cambodian civil servant, when the election comes along, you have to get out and promote the party of the president. That's part of their job as a public servant. Uh, in, of course, in, in Laos, there is no opposition. It's a one-party state. And, of course, it has reaches into Australia here, very much so. We're increasingly concerned. So we have to you know, be, be aware that Khmer people who live in Australia are, are under threat too, potentially. So human rights, mm, challenging. Thanks, Peter. I think that might be where we wrap it up. You've given us some really great insights into this disease, which is a huge problem affecting the livelihoods of people across the region. And it's really interesting to hear the way that you navigate the challenging politics of the region as you do this important work. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Sushara. Cheers. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.